have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Luke. The book of Luke chapter 1. So far as we have been making our way through this gospel, we have seen a series of contrasts. While a respected elderly priest in Israel is visited by an angel and given the promise of a son, so also is a young teenage girl visited by the same angel and given the promise of an even greater son. While the priest questions the promise from God, the young girl resolves to believe and obey. One visit takes place at the height of worship in the very temple itself in Jerusalem, while the other visit takes place in a little town out in the middle of nowhere. Though both pregnant for the first time, one woman is elderly and barren, and she will conceive a son. The other is young and a virgin, and she will conceive an even greater son. And while one son will be great before the Lord, the other son will be great because he is the Lord. Today, these two contrasting scenes, the great and the greater, these two promises of God given at two different times to two different people for two different purposes actually come together this morning in one purpose, in fulfillment of God's plan for his people. And what we see between this visit of Mary and Elizabeth, both expecting mothers for the first time is a visitation of the great and the greater. For it is here that Elizabeth first encounters Jesus who will be her Christ, her King, her Savior. And Mary begins to better understand who it is that she is going to give birth to. As we unpack this passage this morning, what we want to see more than anything is this. What what should happen when we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ? What should be evident in our life, in our desires, in how we live, and how we worship? Because that is exactly what happens to Elizabeth today. We pick up the story of Luke's Gospel in verses 39 through 45 this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of God this morning. From this passage we see five things that should mark us as a people who have encountered Jesus Christ. First we see that we will desire the fellowship of the godly. We will desire the fellowship of the godly. This is the very thing that Mary desired and we see here that in terms of this fellowship, it was one that she was willing to sacrifice for. She was willing to sacrifice for fellowship. Again, we are told that in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, that seems like a very innocuous statement. Well, she's going to get up and she's going to go visit her cousin Elizabeth. But let's stop and think about what we're being told here. This is not just down the street. This is not just across town. The specific town, in fact, or village is not even stated, but the region is. And what we can tell is this. She had to walk somewhere between 80 and 100 miles to get to where she is going, apparently all by herself. Now, young women at that time hardly went to the well by themselves, let alone leave the village alone. 
And we cannot help but wonder, how was her family involved in all this? Did she tell them that she was leaving? Did she say, hey, I'm going to go visit uh, our, our relatives? Did she travel with anyone? Was she given money for her journey? What did she eat? How did she keep safe by sleeping by the side of the road at night? You know, inns were expensive and they weren't very nice places, often doubling for brothels. Good Jewish people did not stay in inns often. They would stay with friends and family. Did she do that on the way? Or, as we can even go and visit this region today in its barrenness, did she just sleep with the wild animals alongside the road? We don't have the answers to these questions ultimately, but what we do know is that God provided for her. She made it. He protected her and ensured her successful journey. But at the front end of that, divine protection was Mary herself. She had no idea what that journey was going to bring. She didn't know whether it was going to be safe or what kind of provision she was going to have. But she was willing to sacrifice these things in order to be with Elizabeth and benefit from her company. She desired fellowship with her cousin, the one to whom God had said is also expecting she said, I, I, I need to go see her, and I'm willing to do anything it takes to get there. Mary was willing to sacrifice for this fellowship because she was also eager for this fellowship. She was eager for fellowship. Notice in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, again, we, we don't have a specific timeline given to us, but you get the impression Mary's not sitting around for several weeks. She's not playing tiddlyweeks wondering, is this a good idea or not? She's not you know, asking her friends. Uh, she's not texting all over the place. you think I should go? Do you think I should wait? What, what's happening here? No. She says, I need to go. This is, this is burning in her heart. It's something she was eager to do, something she did quickly. Why? Well, I can imagine at least three reasons. First of all, she was looking for some support. She's about to be a young, unwed mother. Just because she was willing to follow God in faith, serving him with her life, it doesn't mean she wanted to do it alone. Second, she was looking for the sign that God had promised her. Remember what the angel said? The angel said, the Most High is going to overshadow you. You're going to conceive and bear a son. He is going to be the Messiah. And as a sign that this is true, your elderly, barren cousin Elizabeth is also expecting six months on now. That's the sign for you. And she says, if that's God's sign, I want to see it. I want to go and see the sign that God has given to me. Elizabeth's pregnancy was meant in part to be a sign to Mary that her miraculous virginal conception was possible with God. Finally, I think she was looking for someone who would simply understand what she's going through. Elizabeth was not only her cousin, but someone in a very similar life-changing situation. She'd never been pregnant before. She didn't think it was possible to be pregnant, and suddenly she has an angel appearing to her and saying, God's going to give you a child. That doesn't happen every day. doesn't happen every year. doesn't happen every millennia. And suddenly it's happened twice. This is the only person in the world that has a hint of knowing what I'm going through. I want to go and be comforted and encouraged by her. Now, we see this picture of Mary. It's not hard to think immediately of ourselves and ask, what kind of fellowship are we seeking? Is it something quick and easy like, hi, I'm praying for you, good to see you, and then I'm off? Or is it something deeper and encouraging, something meaningful where your life has been shaped by God in a similar way and therefore you are coming together for encouragement and comfort? What are we willing to sacrifice for that kind of fellowship? Too many times I fear interactions with God's people only come when it fits conveniently into our lives. I can remember several years ago, nobody, you probably hardly remember this person, uh, 
definitely not here now, but uh, very early on when I was here, we had Sunday night uh, services, and uh, I remember that for a while there was uh, a lady who would um, started leaving as soon as the service was over. I mean, we barely said amen, and boom, she was out the door, and I began to get worried, like, is she, you know, is she mad about something? Is she mad with somebody else? And so one night, uh, as, as uh, I said amen, and I saw her sitting in the back and back pew and, and, and got up to leave, I went after her, and I was bobbing and weaving through people in the aisles, and I made it through that front uh, door, and I opened up the door and ran out into the parking lot, and she's already got one leg in the car, I said, hey, what's going on? Where are you going? What, what, what's happening? She said, oh, don't worry about me. I said to get home and see my favorite television show. That was the priority in her life. My first thought was, have you ever heard of a VCR? These days, you got DVRs, you got all kinds of things, but this was the priority in her life. That's sometimes how we are, though, isn't it? Fellowship with church, involvement in people's lives, sure, as long as I don't have to rearrange my work schedule, as long as I don't have too much homework, as long as I don't have to leave early from a family thing, or skip a family thing altogether, or take away time from my hobby, or give up hanging out with my clique, or don't have to miss a television show that I want to watch, then I will come and be with God's people. who sets off into the desert, walking for days, longing to be with someone who would encourage her and comfort her and help her grow closer to God. Here is a young girl who knows the value of fellowship among God's people, and she is ready to sacrifice in that regard. How did all of that come about? In part, it was by her conception of Jesus Christ and her personal encounter with this man who would not only be her son but her Savior. If we encounter Jesus, then we should also desire the fellowship of the godly, but we will hopefully know, we should know also, the worship of the Spirit. The worship of the Spirit. Jeff, I'm changing mics because this thing is driving me crazy. So I'm on red. Okay. The second thing that we see is the worship of the Spirit. Mary here makes her trek, and we read that she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, this point is called the worship of the Spirit. You might say, where is the worship? After all, she's not talking to God. She's not singing to Him. But in reality, she is giving praise to God. In blessing Mary, Elizabeth is not worshiping her, but her God. She is giving praise to God for the blessing of Christ in her womb. So this is worship. What kind of worship is it? We have three of the scriptures here. First of all, it is a powerful worship. It is a powerful worship. Luke says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the exclamation that comes from her lips was driven by something other than Elizabeth herself. It was driven by God's Spirit. She is so filled with God the Spirit that she is moved to worship God the Father because of God the Son. More than that, we see it's a passionate worship. Luke says that Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, you know, sometimes when you look in uh, uh, art books or when you look or on the Internet or on book covers and you see these classical works of art that depict uh, biblical people, they frankly don't look all that real. It's not because they weren't painted well. It's not because the art is poor. It's they, they all have a sort of fakeness to their appearance. They're all a little too neat a little too put together, a little too clean in their first century, third world clothing. Everyone seems to kind of move around in a sort of pious and sedate way. That's not real life. 
That's what real people look like and how real people live. Don't, don't be fooled by the pictures in those books, maybe even in your picture Bible or the art on your walls. Elizabeth did not give some kind of calm intonation of blessings upon Mary, gently putting her hand uh, on her hand and, and, and lovingly pulling her aside and telling her this thing. John, we are told, leaps in her belly like a deer going up the mountain. And in a fraction of a moment, the same spirit that moved John to leap also fills Elizabeth and communicates to her immediately and directly the cause of this leap. This is not some normal kick. John is leaping for joy because Mary, your cousin, is about to give birth to the Messiah. That is who is growing in her, her womb. She is pregnant. Elizabeth lets out this loud cry, not out of pain, joyful worship to God. This most unexpected thing has happened. And what can she do but give praise to God by announcing a blessing on Mary? Her worship was powerful. Her worship was passionate. It was also purposeful. It was a purposeful worship. Again, this is not some generic experience. Elizabeth knew what she was saying. She knew why she was worshiping. The Spirit of God revealed to her who was standing in her midst. He revealed to her that this was the mother of the Messiah, and that was the motivation of her praise. And as we think about this display, again, there is an example here for us today, not just in the gathering like we see on Sunday mornings, though that is certainly part of it, some of us wouldn't know what passionate worship is if it hit us over the head like a two-by-four. We are pained to have to sing four songs of praise to God. We are pained that after we sit down, we have to stand back up. And, and we just have this morose look on our face. And we are singing about the most amazing, glorious truths in the world. I, I, I hate to say it, but I think when... You know, I, I'm not saying we've got to be running up and down the aisles and we've got to be dropping people and dragging them down and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm saying. But maybe, for heaven's sakes, we might share a tear or lift our hands or do something that says, This is amazing! God took on flesh and He died for me! Passionate worship. This is a mark of the filling of God's Spirit. Maybe we aren't filled like we should be. Nevertheless, God also tells us throughout the New Testament that worship is about more than Sunday mornings. Worship is about more than just coming together and singing some songs. Worship is about all of life. How you go about your day, loving your spouse, raising your kids, working your job, thinking your thoughts, expressing your desires. All of that is meant to be worship to God. And that's never going to happen again apart from the filling of God's Spirit. He is the one who leads us and empowers us to worship as we should. And how does he do that? He does it by directing us according to his word. Though Elizabeth does not read something, she does not hear something, it is in fact the word of God communicated immediately to her by the Spirit. It is truth in her mind that moves her to worship the way that she does. God's word, this ancient yet living book is how God still speaks to us today. We should not live moment by moment waiting for some mysterious voice or some vague prompting or an emotional buzz. No, we pick up the word made living and powerful by the Spirit of God as He directs us to the Son of God. And our minds and our hearts are taught and filled and our lives are changed as we worship God our Father. 
real worship of the living God takes place and we are directed into the presence of Jesus by the power of His Spirit through the truth of His Word. If we encounter Jesus truly, then we should know this worship of the Spirit. But third, we should also live with the humility of the blessed. The humility of the blessed. In verse 43, Luke records Elizabeth's words. Why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now this woman knows who Mary is. She knows this is her cousin, but now she knows more than that. Now she knows, as it were, Mary's identity in God's mind. This is not just Mary, her cousin. This is Mary, the mother of her Messiah. The fact that she shows up in her town at her door doesn't swell her with pride, but humbles her with the realization of how blessed she is to have this encounter, this experience. Elizabeth acknowledges that she has experienced a granted blessing, a granted blessing. When you read the Bible, the one truth that you must come away with, if you are at all paying attention to what you're reading, is this. God is personal. The God of the Bible is a personal God. He he is not some impersonal force. He's not any, any kind of vague idea. He is a personal God. And the way he blesses people is with personal blessings. He is not up there with a shotgun of grace just kind of blasting away at the world. He's not up there with a bag of uh, a fairy dust sprinkling it indiscriminately over the nations as if somehow some particle might fall on somebody and they will know his blessing. No, to be granted is to be arranged. It is something planned and executed. It is the king granting to his servant some responsibility or title or gift. It assumes a knowledge of the person and the thing being given. And so it is with God. He is a personal God who reveals himself to people. And the thought that God would do that in Elizabeth's mind, the thought that he would single her out and grant to her such blessing, it humbled her. And it should humble us as well. We who have encountered the living God through Christ, we should not become arrogant and prideful and boasting. We should be reduced to humility such that only by the grace of God we get up and we live our lives. This is a granted blessing, but Elizabeth says it's also a glorious blessing. It's a glorious blessing. The Spirit reveals to Elizabeth that Mary is pregnant. Now, that has to be the Spirit. Because what does Luke say? But but Mary makes her journey. She arrives at the house of Zechariah. She comes into the door and she greets Elizabeth. Now, either that is a, a standard Typical first century Jewish greeting that would be very quick, over in a second or two, about God blessing her. Or Mary talked really fast and jam-packed a lot of information about what just happened over the last few days into that. Elizabeth, it's me, Mary, and I'm here to tell you that an angel visited me. He told me I'm going to conceive, although I'm a virgin, I've never been with Joseph, I haven't been sinful, and yet I'm going to have this son, and he's going to be great, and he's going to be the son of the Most High, he's going to be the Messiah. And then suddenly Elizabeth says, oh, I get it now. I don't think so. I mean, I know she's an excited teenager, but I don't think that's what happened. God, through his Spirit, immediately reveals to Elizabeth all that he has revealed to Mary through the angel. Not only is she pregnant, but she is carrying Elizabeth's Lord. She says in verse 43, the mother of my Lord has come to me. Now, did she know that he was Lord in the ultimate sense? 
that he was God, God the Son in the flesh, the second person of the triune Godhead, veiling his glory in humanity that he might display his glory on the cross? No, probably not. Probably not. But that didn't make this any less glorious. Like David before her who wrote Psalm 110, that the Lord God would say to his Lord, which David knew, his descendant, the one that came from his line of descent, the one that was his son, would ultimately be greater than him. The Lord God would say to his Lord, take the throne of my servant David. So also Elizabeth here understands this, this child of Mary is going to be greater than her. That's what the title Lord means. Someone who is greater in honor or status or authority or glory. What she knew was that this was the Messiah. The title Messiah is from the Old Testament word which means anointed one. It was the most common word that was used to anticipate the anointed servant of the Lord who would come and save God's people from oppression and sin, leading them back to a full and glorious life with God. Even if she didn't know how he would save her or how he would reign, this is what Elizabeth was expecting, her Savior and her King. And it humbles her that the mother of her Lord, this Messiah, would enter her house that this glorious event would take place to her. It humbles her that even in gestational form, her Lord is in her presence. This is why more than anything we see that Elizabeth knows this is a gracious blessing. This is a gracious blessing. You can imagine Elizabeth's mind thinking of all her extended family, of all the sisters and the aunts and the cousins and the grandparents, some who were probably far more influential and prosperous than she was. And yet out of all those people, not only has she been chosen to bear the forerunner of the Messiah, but now the mother of the Messiah himself has come to see her. It seemed incredible to her. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why is this blessing coming to me? That's her question. Elizabeth ponders this astonishing thing that has happened and is humbled that it has happened to her. Why is she so special? Why is she so important? Why has she found such grace in the eyes of God? That's what's going on in her mind. She knows that she's not worth this honor, and that is the definition of humility. Are we so blessed? If we know Jesus, we are. In fact, we're more blessed than Elizabeth. Because we stand on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We have seen the fullness of God's plan to save his people. We know more. We have experienced more than she ever would. We are just as and even more blessed. The question, though, is are we as humble as Elizabeth? Or are we filled with pride? Spurgeon once said this, Pride is a thing that should be unnatural to us, for we have nothing to be proud of. What is there in a man of which he should glory? Our very creation is enough to humble us. What are we but creatures of today? Our frailty should be sufficient to lay us low, for we shall be gone tomorrow. Our ignorance should, t- can, should tend to keep pride from our lips. What are we but like the wild donkey's colt which knoweth nothing? And our sins ought to effectually stop our mouths and lay us in the dust. And yet he says, pride carries with it its own ability to grow in the most unlikely of circumstances, including the human heart. But we 
is those that Christ has come to and has offered his life for that should not be proud, but should be humble. It's no wonder that when Paul himself considers this, he was in awe of Christ's work. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person. One would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we we begin to fathom that reality and see how much we have been blessed by the salvation we have in Christ, then we should not have pride. We should have humility. It has been granted to us to not only see the glory of Christ, but by His grace to experience life and forgiveness with God. Us. Us. When we know who we are and all of our failings and what we deserve for all eternity, how can that not but humble us before God? More than that, it should also bring us joy. And if we encounter Jesus, then that's what we should experience. This is the fourth thing that we see. The joy of the redeemed. The joy of the redeemed. We've already seen that Elizabeth's baby jumped in the womb. It was a jump that provoked Elizabeth herself to be filled with the Spirit and offer worship to God as she acknowledges His blessing on Mary's life. But then here she explains why the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth says, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here we see two things. First, we see the joy of a predestined life. The joy of a predestined life. Do you remember what we saw of John earlier in the chapter when the prophetic word came to Zechariah about who this child would be? His birth was only foretold, but we, but we were told what kind of a man he would be, what he would accomplish in this life. We were told that he would be full of God's spirit even from the womb. His life was, in fact, already mapped out and his ministry put forward by God. There's no doubt of what he's going to do. I'm sorry, Zachariah, he's not going to follow in your footsteps. He's not going to be a priest. He will be a prophet. He will be my prophet. He will be the last of the prophets that point forward to Christ. Because now they will all point back and say, look what he has done. At this point in his life, John is only six months old in utero. That means that in the womb of Elizabeth, he has well-defined facial features as well as fingerprints and footprints. His skin would be red and wrinkly, covered with fine, soft hair. He can hear loud noises and be startled. His eyelids are just beginning to part as he begins to open his eyes. All his vital organs are finishing forming, some of them already functioning. He's so small and vulnerable, yet already God has determined every moment of his life. He's already established his ways. He is the one, the very one, knitting him together in Elizabeth's womb, preparing him to accomplish his will. But God doesn't even wait for him to be born. Even then, John is fulfilling his calling, already filled with God's Spirit. John hears the sound of Mary's voice, and by God's Spirit, he knows he is hearing the sound of the Lord's mother, and he leaps as the Lord himself comes near. John has made the womb a pulpit, delivering his first message of the coming Messiah, a Savior, a King that brings us joy. John was appointed and predestined to be the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. John's purpose in life was to get people ready for Jesus. And here is his very first act of ministry. It's simply amazing for me to think about what is happening here. 
and how the predestined life of John is, is even reflected in our own lives. For like him, God has loved us and he has chosen us. He has planned for us a life of service to him. And when we live that life, we too will know joy in Christ. But there are also weighty implications of this text. Particularly when we read it in light of the whole Bible. Here we see not only the joy of a predestined life, but also the joy of preborn life. The joy of preborn life. What are the implications of what we read from John's actions here? At least three. First of all, we see this personhood exists in preborn life. Personhood exists in preborn life. The word that Luke uses for baby is the same we see here in other places that describe a baby that's already been born. So, for example, in the next chapter, when, Jesus, when Luke describes the baby Jesus in the manger, it's the same word. There's no specialized word here for embryo or for fetus. It's a baby. And it's no surprise that baby John is treated as a person. Isn't that the critique that we hear today? Uh, they can't say it's, it's not human. What else is it going to be? It's human-like. But they say well, it's, not a, it's not a human person yet. The pre-born life isn't, doesn't have personhood. And yet here, the Spirit communicates to Elizabeth that her baby's leap was not just reactionary, that wasn't just impulsive, it wasn't just I hear a loud noise and I'm scared. It was intentional. It was motivated by joy. More than that, we were reminded that the angel said that John himself was to be filled with the Spirit. That is what caused this, this, this leap to take place. Friends, only people are filled with God's Spirit, not blobs of tissue, people. Only people have intentional motivations, not blobs of tissue. All these things point to personhood in this tiny pre-born baby. But, you know, maybe we wonder, you know, should we really trust Luke? I mean, who is he, right? Well, he's a medical doctor writing under the inspiration of God who imagined, designed, created, and sustained human life. I think he's trustworthy. Secondly, the implication is this. There is a penalty for taking preborn life. There is a penalty for taking preborn life. If you believe the Bible at all, not just from this text, but from front to back, it becomes clear that human life from its very inception has value and worth before God. It is not a blob of tissue. It is not something less than human, less than a person. It is person. That means we should cherish it. We should see it as a blessing even on the worst of days when the mom is hugging the toilet, puking her brains out when she is dehydrated and can't get out of bed, or if it's 10 years down the line and they are acting like total jerks. It is human life and we give thanks for it. But here's the problem. We live in a culture that rejects the Bible. We live in a culture that rejects the clear humanity and personhood of the preborn and murders them in the womb. Yes, murder. What else can it be if it's a person? Every year, 1.5 million American women have an abortion. That's terrible. That's a holocaust happening in our country. It's an indelible stain of idolatry on the very fabric of our culture that we should see the image of God as something bothersome to our lifestyle, hindering to our careers, and a mistake from our inability to control our passions. And the Bible prescribes the penalty for such a murderous act. In the Old Testament, it's not just implied. In the Old Testament, as God is giving laws to his people about how his people should live, he says if there is a fight, 
if two men break out into a fight and, 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 it, and they come into contact with a pregnant woman who's injured, an unborn baby dies, he says there is a severe penalty. He says you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. God is saying that preborn life is not a choice. It's not a political position. It's not a talking point. It's a capital offense. It is murder, and your life is forfeit if you commit it. In Old Testament Israel, if you cause an abortion, you were killed. There may be some of you here that have committed that act of murder. That seems unthinkable, but something like 25% of abortions in this country are committed by evangelical Christians. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you know someone who is. Maybe you have a boyfriend or a husband. Maybe you are a boyfriend or a husband who is not just complicit but even encouraged the murder of your unborn child. As heinous an act as it is to abort a baby, the unbelievable good news is that God is merciful and He is willing to pardon your sin. There is pardon for taking preborn life. Mary's baby is barely formed in her womb. Jesus is only days old at this point. In a short time, he would grow like John and be born. He would live a short life of 30 years, and then he would die. Though Mary's son, Jesus, would never sin or do anything wrong towards God or anyone else, he would be strung up on a Roman cross like a criminal. Why? Because the whole purpose of his coming, the whole purpose of his conception, the whole purpose of his birth and his life is his death. That's what everything is moving towards. Death not as, a, not as a, a regular person like you and me, but death as a savior, as a mediator, as a substitute for sinners. Because on the cross, he would die under God's wrath towards sin. And sinners like us, satisfying the judgment they deserve. On the way, he would be beaten until he had bloody stripes across his back. He would have a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, sending blood and sweat into his eyes, his burning eyes. He will experience not just the physical agony of crucifixion as his hands and feet are nailed to the cross, but weeping and gnashing of teeth as the fullness of God's judgment is poured out upon his soul. And so for the murder of abortion, along with any other sin you can imagine, from something as simple as lying to stealing to genocide, there is Christ for you on the cross, dying in your place, hand for nail-scarred hand, foot for nail-scarred foot, wound for willing wound, stripe for bloody stripe, his life, an atoning life for your own. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again from the dead for you, and he will forgive you and bring you to God. This is why we seek out Jesus, to know him and the power of his saving work and to experience the joy of those who are redeemed. Finally, if we encounter Jesus, we will delight in the blessedness of faith. The blessedness of faith. Elizabeth says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed. She had faith. And as a result, Elizabeth, speaking by the power of the Spirit, says she is blessed. What kind of belief, what kind of faith did Mary display? First, it was a word-inspired faith. It was a word-inspired faith. Mary believed. What did she believe? 
She believed the word of the Lord that was given to her. Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Imagine what's going on through Mary's mind when the angel appeared to her. Imagine what's going on through her mind the day after the angel appeared to her. Was it just a dream? How could it be true? Why would he pick me? How do I know I'm pregnant? I don't feel pregnant. Should, should, should I wait until I start showing before I, I really believe? She had every reason to doubt God's word. I, I can't imagine that Satan himself was there tempting her to doubt God's word and promise. But she believes. She believes. Mary believes that God would fulfill the word that he spoke to her. That is the foundation of her faith. God speaks. God makes promises. And God keeps those promises. More than just a word-inspired faith, she also displays a work-evidenced faith. A work-evidenced faith. The whole passage points to the fact that her faith led her to act. Her faith in God and his faithfulness to his word is seen in her picking up everything and taking off to go see Elizabeth. If what God told me is true, Mary says, then I've got to do something. I can't just sit here and act as if nothing happened. I can't just sit here and say, wow, this is going to be amazing one day. No, I've got to go and I've got to act on these promises. I've got to go and see Elizabeth. And Elizabeth knew all of this. More than that, she blesses Mary because of it. You know, so many times we try to live the Christian life on our own. Even the best of us somehow manage to disconnect how we live each day from the promises that God has made to us in Christ. And the result is that we fall on our face. We grow tired or we grow fearful or we get selfish or we simply get things wrong and we mess up. But God doesn't expect us to go it alone. God doesn't expect us to live for him by ourselves. He not only told us what he has done in the past, but he's also told us what he is doing now and what he will do for us in the future. It's on the basis of that display of his past faithfulness and the promise of his future grace that he calls us to live now, boldly and obediently for him. If that's not the pattern of our life, if we are not trying to obey the commands or even seeing some measure of success in obeying the commands of the risen Christ, if we aren't fearless in our pursuit of obedience to him, then perhaps we need to go back to the basics of our faith. Perhaps we need to go back to the basics and ask, what are we really trusting in? Are are we trusting in our own strength? Are we trusting in, in our own mind and abilities? Or have we seen the promises of the Almighty? And are trusting in Him to fulfill them. This morning, ask yourself whether or not you've experienced the presence of Jesus. If you have, are you continuing to actively seek it out? Day by day, are you seeking the presence of Christ and the fellowship that comes by our union with Him through faith? If you are, then you will come to the light and the fellowship of the godly. You will experience the worship of the Spirit and the humility of the blessed. You will know the joy of the redeemed and the blessedness of faith. If that is not your experience this morning, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the millionth time, seek the presence of Christ that you may know the fullness of joy that is offered to us in Him. Father, we are so thankful for the the work of our Savior. We're thankful that we have these stories, God, 
and not only set for us models to follow, but more importantly, set forth the glory of your name. We might look to you and see how great you are as our God and trust in you. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we would live not by what we can see, not by what we can measure, not by what we think is right, but God, we would live by faith in you and in your promises. Father, may it be so for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we ask it.